Thank you very much. Good morning. Thank you to the Hall family for leading us in singing today. Thank you to Steve and Jen and Katie and Liesel and Greta and Frederick and <laughs> Marta. And if I had to turn your Bible to, first, uh, to Acts chapter 2. Um, you guys always sound great. Acts chapter 2. And would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the sunshine. Lord, I pray for our time this morning. As always, when we come to your word, I pray that, Lord, you would use it. You would use the truth of your scripture to transform us, to point us to you, to grow us as your people and disciples and church. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When I was in seminary at Trinity... I lived in a learning community on campus that was dedicated to spiritual formation. The first year, there were 12 of us. We lived in four apartment-style suites on campus. Each suite had three rooms, and we were the only people on our floor. So we saw each other all the time, and certainly we saw our two suite mates every day. We had retreats together before each semester. We rotated through having individual meals one-on-one -on -one with everybody. As a group, we would meet once a week, have dinner and talk for about three hours. It's kind of like living with your Sunday school class. <laughs> I've joked before that unless I join a cult someday, I'm never going to have that type of community again. <laughs> Most of my friends from, from Trinity, with whom I still regularly interact, were the guys with whom I lived on that floor. And our weekly meetings were pretty open and honest. We would talk about our struggles. We'd talk about our sins. I know things about those guys, guys who I respect and love, guys who are serving churches, serving as missionaries, getting doctorates. I know things about them that most people don't know about them. I've seen some break down in tears. I've seen them go through spiritual struggles, family struggles, personal struggles. I think we had some of the best students at Trinity when I was there. Yet, we were all still pretty messy. We were blessed to be in a place where we could talk about those things together. There are many reasons why this was helpful to me. Most especially because I made some great friends from this. Some of them... I talk to you more than others now, but I believe all of us have a special bond that we share. 
Because it's hard to not feel a bond with people with whom you've experienced that level of fellowship. We're continuing in our New Year's series, Pillars of the Christian Life. This morning, we talk about fellowship, and we're looking at a section from the book of Acts. And in this section, the Apostle Luke, who authored Acts, gives us a window into the life of the early church in Jerusalem. Perhaps more than any other section in the New Testament, it shows us what life was like in the early church. And it's a beautiful thing. It paints a picture that people have studied for generations and tried to recreate. And from that, we'll just jump right into our passage this morning. The passage begins by looking at four things which the early church devoted themselves to. So jumping right in, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Four devotions of the early church. First thing, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's fitting that that's where it starts. The teaching, the word of God, the proclamation of the gospel is the thing which is most integral to the Christian community. Because it is the thing that unites all Christians. Certainly in our church, the word is central to what we believe. There are sermons recorded in the book of Acts. Some of the preaching themes in Acts include that Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is righteous. Among those also the necessity of repentance, that salvation comes through Jesus alone. And so it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Second thing, fellowship. Again, the reason behind their fellowship was their shared faith in the gospel. Keep in mind, in the early church, there weren't a lot of Christians. They didn't have a lot of churches. It was a slim minority. It was a new thing. And so the church needed each other. They had to face adversity together. And those shared hardships helped to form strong bonds. Today, in much of the world, Christians face persecution. Christians need each other. Here in America, we aren't in such dire circumstances, but we have just as much need for fellowship and community. We were made for fellowship. Fellowship is eternal. We have a God who has always existed in fellowship with his own triune nature, the three persons of the Trinity, existing forever together. Perfect, total, absolute unity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When man was created, we were in fellowship with God in the garden. We were in the unmitigated presence of the Lord. Before God made Eve, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. Abraham was told that he'd be the father of a nation. In the Exodus, God brought the entire Israelite nation out of slavery. Among the earliest events in the Gospels, Jesus calls a group of men to follow him, but also in that, to join him. And that is meant to be exemplified in the church. Because the gospel restores a broken relationship between fallen humanity and God. And Christian fellowship is meant for people who have a relationship with God and who are united in that faith to have fellowship with each other. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, John is talking about the impact of the gospel on our fellowship with God. 
and other Christians. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So Christian community does include the word, the teaching, but it can't just end there. We also need fellowship. We need each other. When people say things like, I can worship God on my own, I don't need to go to church. I said this last week, but that view is totally unbiblical. In the New Testament, there is no such thing as a Christian who is not part of the church. While a Christian's relationship with Jesus is personal, it is not private. Christianity is not a solo sport, it's a team sport. In our passage in Acts, it doesn't say that the early church practiced fellowship or that they liked fellowship, but that they devoted themselves to fellowship. Of all the topics we've discussed over the last few weeks, prayer, the word, discipleship, service, fellowship is the one that I think can most easily be a blind spot for Christians. For instance, a few weeks ago when we talked about the Bible and spending time in the Bible, you know if you read your Bible or don't. Or when we talked about prayer, you know if you have a non-existent prayer life or not. I think that we can think that fellowship isn't an issue. In part, I think it's important that we see fellowship as a means to an end. The fruit which authentic Christian fellowship produces is authentic and meaningful relationships. Relationships where there is love and trust. Fellowship is not merely nodding at someone from across the sanctuary. Fellowship is not simply seeing someone from the church in town and waving to them. And that is why I think fellowship can be a blind spot. Because most of us are nice. Most of us are pleasant people. Most of us come to church and generally get along with everyone else. And I think that's true for most churches. And since we get along with people, I think we can have the temptation to think that the fellowship is really strong. But is it? I spoke in the beginning about my experience with the spiritual formation floor when I was at Trinity. We got to know each other very well in our time together. How many people, how many people here truly know you? I'm not asking how many people know your name, know what you do for a living, know where you live, know a little bit about your family. That's all pretty basic information. In this church, not counting your immediate family, how many people truly know you? How many people know the real heart of the areas where you struggle, the sins you struggle with? How many people have you really talked to about the idols in your heart that you struggle with? And I don't mean some vague, yeah, I struggle, I'm not perfect. No, that you've really had conversations. This is a struggle for me. This is what's keeping 
my eyes off of God, my devotion from God. How many people here know you? How many people here know your insecurities, your weaknesses? How are we doing in this area? Being open, being vulnerable, taking down the walls, taking down the guard of your heart. Because we don't like that usually. We, we like to appear strong. We like to appear that we have it all together. It can be scary to be open and honest. Because if we're open and honest, in our heart of hearts, there's a piece of us that can make us doubt if, if people really knew us, really knew what we went through, really knew what we thought, really knew what we struggled with, that maybe they wouldn't like us as much, or maybe they wouldn't respect us as much. And so for that reason, real connection can be hard. How many people know you? It's difficult. I think especially for men, but it's a challenge for everyone. It's easy to talk about the superficial things. It's easy to talk about the weather in this gale force wind that we have today. It's easy to talk about sports. It's easy to talk about how messed up the rest of the world is. It's hard to talk about how messed up you are. I think that fellowship is a challenge in American churches in part because of who we are as Americans. We're independent. We value being self-sufficient and self-reliant. Oftentimes, we don't like to be open because we like to try to handle things on our own. And it can be especially difficult in a small town. I think of different churches where I've attended and served. I've gone to mega churches in Chicago. I've gone to churches in the suburb of my hometown, Columbus, Ohio. I've been in small cities in Minnesota and here in a rural area. Every church has challenges with fellowship and deep connections. But in a lot of ways, I think the smaller the town, the harder it can be, which might seem totally counterintuitive. Perhaps it seems like connection and deep friendships would naturally happen in a place like Cisna Park because most of us live in pretty close proximity to each other. I think of the church I went to in suburban Columbus before I left for seminary. I lived about 45 minutes away. And it wasn't just me. It felt like people from that church lived everywhere but close to the church. And that's not really so unusual. I did a survey this week on Facebook in a theology group that I'm in. I had 351 responses. Among the things that I asked was, how long does it take for you to commute to church? 351 responses. 142 people said longer than 20 minutes, which was more than the 122 who said less than 10 minutes. But here's why connection is hard. Here's why it's difficult here. Because for the people who are from Cisna Park, you're all related to somebody here. And I'm not judging that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's just the simple reality. But the connections are not just blood. If you're from Cisna Park, you have people here who you grew up with, went to school with, 
people who you work with or you used to work with or your dads work together or your neighbors or your families know each other. So you have all these different levels of connection. And that exposes you because people know you already. They know your family. And so the temptation can be to actually not want to be open. Now, imagine you're in a city or you're at a church in the suburbs where most people live 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes away. You have people who did not grow up together. They do not have extended family going to the same church. They don't work together. They don't live near each other. For the most part, in their normal lives, they don't even run into each other outside of church. But when you have that anonymity, it can actually be easier to open up because there's less to lose. Again, I don't want to sound like I'm idealizing churches in cities and suburbs. They have their issues too. But in a small town, it's because we're close that we can actually be very distant. I'm also not saying that's true of every single person here. But what about you? How many people here know you? It takes intentionality to build community. It takes intentionality to foster friendships. It takes intentionality to participate in life-giving fellowship. We'll get back to that idea as we continue in this passage. As we continue to consider things that the early church devoted themselves to, teaching, fellowship. The third thing that Luke talks about, the breaking of bread. Still in verse 42. There's debate if the breaking of bread is referring to communion or if it's a reference to people sharing meals together. I think it's possible that it's actually referring to both. The fo- first, starting with the idea of communion, which we'll be doing in a few minutes. It's interesting when I think about communion and when I think about baptism. Now, there are multiple purposes behind both communion and baptism. But one of them is that these are, are ordained practices which Christ gave to the church, which are public activities Within the church, communion is communal. It's something that we do together. You have believers partaking of communion, celebrating and remembering Christ's sacrificial death. We do that together. Because it's a shared faith in Jesus which unites, which unifies us. And it's the same way with baptism. Baptism is a public event. It's a public affirmation of faith. You can't do either of those things on your own. You can't just go home and have some juice and a piece of bread and say, I'm having communion. That's not how it works. There's a story about the astronaut Buzz Aldrin when he went to the moon that he had communion. He had, I don't know if it was wine or juice, and bread. I believe, and many people who have studied communion agree, that that's not truly communion. You can't do communion by yourself. And that's not some moot technicality. Because it's about the church. It's sharing the Lord's Supper with others. And it's the same with baptism. If you were in a swimming pool and you just dunk yourself in and come up, you can't say, hey, I just baptized. No, that's not how it works. It's connected to the church. 
the fellowship of the church matters. So we have these sacred ordinances handed down to us by Jesus. And among other things, and again, there are multiple purposes to both, but they show us the value of community. Because they're meant to be practiced in an environment where we're known and with people who share a common faith. So that's one side of the coin where he talks about people breaking bread. It can refer to communion, which I think it certainly does. But again, I think it can also refer to sharing meals together. We regularly see Jesus dining with people in the Gospels. A shared meal is one of the most communal activities in which we can participate. In this passage, we'll talk again of sharing meals at the end. Verses 46 and 47, where it says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Fellowship was not an activity exclusive to when they were in church. But they were also inviting people into their homes to share meals. Fellowship wasn't just a Sunday morning activity. It was a way of life. If you're someone who comes here and it's just about Sunday morning, but there's never any fellowship with people from the church throughout the week, you're missing out. Fourth thing, prayer. We talked at great length about prayer a few weeks ago. Prayer is not merely something that we do at the beginning of sermon, at the beginning of Bible studies. It's not only something that we do by ourselves, although all of those are important. But in Acts 2, we see a glimpse of a church who prayed together. One thing that we're trying to do right now on Sunday mornings is to have a time to come together and pray. And again, let me encourage you, if you haven't been, to join us. Let us be a praying church. A church who regularly comes together to pray. To pray for each other, to pray for our needs, to pray for our community. Because communal prayer is an act of fellowship. As our passage in Acts continues, we see some of the fruit of the fellowship in the Jerusalem church. Beginning in verse 43, we see the close-knit group of believers and that they were experiencing wonderful blessings from the Lord. Where it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done throughout, through the apostles. When the passage talks of wonders and signs, many of the same types of things which Jesus had done in his ministry were present in the early church. This close-knit, supportive community was experiencing God's power in mighty ways. In the next two verses, the passage continues to talk about people helping and supporting one another within the church. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Verse 44 says that they had all things in common. Luke is talking about the tremendous unity which existed within the church. Isaac Newton said that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. In American churches, if everything a church does or does not do, someone might leave. 
I've done informal surveys asking people the most ridiculous reason they've ever heard of somebody leaving their church. It's incredible. One person said that a person left because the communion bread was too sweet. That the Sunday school teacher had a tattoo. That the pastor didn't wear a suit. One church, people left because they rearranged the seats or because they changed the words in the benediction. One person stopped going to a church because his cat died and he just stopped going to church altogether. People quit coming over paint, over carpet, over projects. I heard a story about a person who stopped going to a church because the pastor would not allow a Buddhist to perform a ceremony at the beginning of the service. The pastor was accused of being prejudiced against Asian people. The pastor's son told me this story. The pastor's wife is from Japan. People leave for ridiculous reasons. What do all those examples have in common? Then none of those are important theological issues. People don't usually leave churches because the pastor starts preaching heresy or because of a major doctrinal shift. Sure, that can happen, but it's not usually the reason. It's so often over ultimately inconsequential matters where people get mad because they didn't get their way. And you know what the antidote to that is? It's love. Love for the church. Love for the people. Because if you love the people and love the church, you can accept not getting your way sometimes. For instance, when we change the carpet here later this year, and we put a big Ohio State logo in the middle. Yeah, you guys might not like that, but you'll know how much it means to me. You can accept not getting your way sometimes. I certainly have had situations Sometimes I don't even speak up because I think it's not that important and unity matters. This early church in the book of Acts, they had love. That's what it means when they had all things in common. They were willing to let the little things go. When the, people talks, when the passage talks about people selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds... There have been people who have argued that this verse is meant to indicate some sort of socialistic or communistic relationship with these people in this church. It's not that. Because you had a situation where people were freely giving what they had to help people in need. And it wasn't being um, administered by the government. It was their free choice. Politics is not the point of the passage. The point is that it was a church where people looked out for each other and helped each other. Last two verses of this passage, verses 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God was adding to their numbers. The Lord had greatly blessed his church. He had blessed their community, their relationships, And he was also blessing them by expanding their church. As I consider this passage and what it says about fellowship, a few thoughts come to mind. 
First thing, fellowship is everyone's job. For some of us, we're much better at fellowship and relationships than others. But I think it can be really easy to fall into habits, to fall into our comfort zone, to fall into our social circles. In the church, fellowship is everyone's job. Think of the core group of people who you know really well here, not counting your immediate family. But think of people who you regularly visit with, regularly socialize with. Maybe it's a couple people. Maybe it's three people. Maybe it's five people. Maybe it's less. However many. Ask yourself, when was the last time you did something socially with a person from the church who was not part of that social circle? Again, some of us are really good with things like that. And if you're somebody who has a high capacity for fellowship and relationships... Sincerely, I thank you for the relationship that you set. But I want us to be an entire church that is devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread. And so this is my challenge. To push yourself outside your comfort zone. To be the instigator. To invite someone or a family over for dinner. To invite someone or a family to lunch. To invite a couple families over for game night. Don't wait around for someone to invite you. You invite someone. It's a two-way street. Be the spark. And if someone turns down an invitation, come to me. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. (laughs) If someone turns down an invitation, ask someone else. Or ask them another time. And if you don't get invited, invite someone to something. And then do it again. And it matters because when we get to know each other better, it is then that we can form deeper and stronger bonds. I mentioned earlier that a challenge in a small town is that you have so many levels of connection to people that it can actually interfere with forming strong relationships. But if we could just get past that, if we could just break through that and have a community where we do know each other, where we're known, where we have authentic relationships, and in spite of our imperfections, are still loved. If we can get past the roadblocks, then we can enjoy a level of community that will change our lives and change the community. It's a beautiful thing when that happens. I think back to the spiritual formation community that I was part of when I was in seminary. I think of how enriching it was to have a group of men with whom I could share. But it makes me sad that that type of community, that level of relationship, is something that so many Christians will never have. There's something freeing in being open and transparent. Because again, it's easy to fear that people, if they really knew us, really knew our struggles, that they wouldn't like us, or that they wouldn't have as much respect for us, or they'd think something bad about us. People will accept you. But you have to be willing to be known. I'm not saying that we should be totally open with every single person. But do you have a couple people like that? People with whom you can be real? It's great if you're married. Obviously, there's no relationship that exists like marriage. But for men, we still need to have strong male brothers and brothers in Christ 
in our lives. We need that. Psalm 133.1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And in the same way, women need friendships with other women. I mentioned that my challenge is to invite you to invite others in. And I'm holding myself to that same challenge. It's my goal to meet with every family or individual this year from the church. And I know it can be easy for you to think, well, yeah, but you're the pastor. Acts 2 doesn't say that the pastor had really good fellowship with everyone. It was the entire church. As a church of good fellowship amongst themselves. Also, when you invite someone, you don't have to invite me to everything. I mean, I love being invited, but I'm just saying that if you want to invite a couple people over and don't invite us, our feelings will not be hurt. Something else that I'm doing, it's in the bulletin, we, we briefly touched on it earlier this morning, but uh, after church this morning, I'm going to go to, uh, to lunch at Dairy Queen, and I'm going to start doing that the first Sunday of every month. Restaurant might change, you know, we have so many options, um, <laughs> but, so we might switch to the restaurant at some time, but today I'm doing Dairy Queen, and I'd like to extend an invitation to anyone who wants to join. If you can't do it today, that's fine. Maybe next month, maybe in April. But I plan to do that the first Sunday of every month. As I said, inviting someone who maybe you don't know as well to have a meal or to try to get to know someone better, that's a challenge to all of us. There's a thousand excuses we can find to not do this. Briefly debunking some of these. I don't have time. You do. You have 168 hours in a week. If you work 60 hours, which is more than most people work, and if you sleep 8 hours a night, which is more than most people sleep, that's 116 hours. That's over 50 more hours in the week you still have. Also, last time I checked, we all have to eat. You do have time to eat a meal with somebody because you're going to eat anyway. Another excuse we might make. My house is too dirty. Go to a restaurant. Or clean up your house. Or invite them to your dirty house. Another reason we might make as an excuse, I'm just not good at that. Push yourself. We have jobs where we work with people, have to interact with people in life. If you know how to exist in society, then you're capable of having fellowship. Now, you might be more of an introvert. I am, as is Carrie. And so, that I get it. If you're more of an introverted personality, yeah, being social takes something out of you. But it's still important. Love for people and love for the church is to be the motivation behind all of this. I want us to be a church where everyone feels known and loved. I want us to be a church where we are invested in each other's lives. Again, some of us are. But I want, us, I want that to be our entire church. As we've seen in the series over the last several weeks, as we've talked about the pillars of the Christian life, my overarching point, as we've talked about the word, prayer, discipleship, service, fellowship, my overarching point of all of this is that for a Christian, 
Our faith and walk with Christ is meant to be the focal point of everything else in our lives. Because it's easy to compartmentalize. It's easy to go to church and to be a nice person, but not really walking with the Lord and not really enjoying the fellowship of the church. And I think part of the reason why fellowship is a struggle in the American church is because it's so easy to go about our daily lives doing your own thing and simply coming to church on Sunday. But when we do that, when we're guilty of that, meaningful fellowship might not seem like it's such an important thing. Because we have our own friends and our own interests. But the more we grow in our devotion to Christ, knowing and understanding his word, being transformed and renewed by his word, the more we come to him in prayer, the more we walk with Christ and grow in faith as his disciples, the more we give of ourselves to serving Christ and serving his mission in the world of using our gifts to serve him and glorify him, the more we throw ourselves into that, then the more we need each other. Invite someone to lunch. Get to know a family. Come join me at Dairy Queen. And as we consider fellowship, now I invite you to celebrate communion with me. And I invite our deacons up front. The first time that communion was served, it was a supper between Jesus and his beloved disciples. They were enjoying fellowship with each other. Luke chapter, two, Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 23. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this? I'm struck by Luke's account in addressing the disciples. Where Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There are different interpretations of what Jesus might have meant. But I simply look at the words and the desire that Jesus had to share a meal in which he would partake of the Last Supper with his disciples. Jesus takes a meal, something so inherently communal. communal. And it is through that meal that Jesus takes the bread and the cup and tells us that they are symbols of a new covenant. His body, which was broken for sin, and his blood, which was shed for sin. Jesus commands the disciples to do it in remembrance of him. And so we do celebrate communion. Above all, 
to remember Jesus and his death that he died so that we could be forgiven. And we remember his body, which was broken, and the cross that he went to. And we remember his blood, which was shed for us. And that's what it's all about. And that's why we do it. Because Jesus died so that we can have life. But when we take communion, let us not forget that it's something that we come together as a church to do. We come together to remember his death as an act of fellowship. This morning, and every time we do communion, we do open communion, which means that it's open to anybody who believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So I invite you to that this morning. Reading now from the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So 